Good morning to you, John. How are you, friend? I'll bet you're very disappointed now you can't go out with the hose pipe and water the garden and all of that. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody that knows me would be very surprised to tell me with the hose pipe. Yeah, it's a bit, a bit like myself. It's one of the few things that won't be bothering me too much, but there you no, go. Listen, no. you're going to talk to us today about some recent cases that involve the banks, our friends in the banks, John. Yeah, well, just coincidentally, I think, not intentional on my part, I get a feed, as you know, and I don't mean every day at lunchtime or whatever, but I get a, a news feed on cases, or recent cases, and uh, I usually try and get rid of the ones that I don't want to read and hold on to the ones that I want to have a look at. Mm. And I, I look at them, you know, try and do it reasonably regularly. And then I get your show on the way, make sure I do do it so I can I have something to talk about. But it turns out coincidentally that there's, a, there's three cases that I put aside to have a look at. One was a Court of Appeal decision. Um, which always kind of puts up your radar when you see a court of appeal decision or a Supreme Court decision, because <clears throat> obviously when you're looking at law and you're looking at principles of law, you look to the appeal courts or the superior courts, you know, they're your kind of your benchmarks in terms of what the law is supposed to be or how it's supposed to be applied. So usually when one of those passes, I usually stop it and have a look at it. And this one was a follow-on to a Supreme Court judgment about a year or so ago where you're dealing with a situation where <clears throat> the bank issues you with a letter saying <clears throat> you're in arrears on your mortgage or something and demands payment of the mortgage, which might result in you being asked to pay two or 300000 uh, or whatever the balance is on your mortgage. Mm. And it's what they call a letter of demand and when they issue that letter of demand it usually follows on with what they call a summons which is literally your legal document that starts the kind of process of the bank moving against your household ultimately and that's kind of coming under a bit of scrutiny well I mean all of this has come under scrutiny over the last number of years mm. the whole area of going after the family home and or, or you know looking to sell assets and orders for possession and the whole insolvency code, etc. which, again, there was another case on that, which I'll deal with after I've, I've hopefully tried to deal with this court of appeal decision. Mm. The problem I have with these plans is they're usually 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 pages. So right. try and put them in a nutshell is the problem. Mm. But it, the, the note with this particular one, which made it interesting to read, was the kind of... Stuff that you come across every now and then as a lawyer and you're kind of going, oh, for God's sake, you know, this doesn't seem right. You know, surely to God, this shouldn't happen. And in this particular scenario, what happened was that the bank solicitor was talking to the house owner solicitor and they said, this case is in next Monday and uh, it's going to take longer than 15 or 20 minutes because I'm contesting it, i.e. the house owner's contesting the entitlement of the bank to get the judgment because they're saying they've raised no issues, you see. Mm -hmm. And they put in all their paperwork as in when you're dealing with these kind of cases, they're dealt with initially in, on paper. So that's called affidavit evidence. So mm -hmm. initially, and quite a number of cases actually, and you know, when you're talking about the whole COVID-19 thing, I've always taken the view that if where something is uh, on affidavit evidence only, which is what I'm 
caregivers here. In other words, I set my stall out and I put it in writing and I give it to you and you do the same thing. And the two of us then have a kind of a written dialogue between the two of us as to what the argument is about. That's called affidavit evidence. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these summary judgments, a lot of these judgments where the banks are going after you for money that you owed them on the loan that they gave you, they're dealt with under the umbrella of this affidavit evidence, you see. And the aside, I was going to say that in the COVID, post-COVID-19, hopefully we're nearly in the post-COVID-19 phase, there are cases that should really be dealt with by video and by our modern COVID way of dealing with things. But anyway, that's an aside. Mm -hmm. But in this particular situation, what happened here was a classic kind of scenario. The two lawyers have a chat. One fellow says, look, this is going to take too long, so it won't be dealt with in this list next Monday. And will you look after it for me? So, of course, what happens? Uh, in goes um, the team for the bank. And uh, it might say they pull a fast one, but... They say to the court, oh, the other guy isn't here. Judge says, where's the other side? Okay, right, I'll deal with the case. Dealt with the case. Looked at the case from the bank's perspective. Said, yeah, okay, yeah, tick, tick, tick. All your all the boxes are ticked. You, you know, you've proven your debt, and I've now given you a judgment. Wow. So, you know, it's it's kind of the one that you're kind of going, wow, exactly. Mm -hmm. And you're saying, sure, that's not right. Now, and, and sorry, John, there was nothing in writing yeah. between the two lawyers to say, listen, you're going to look after this. There's, it was a gentleman's agreement, was that it? Exactly, yeah. exactly. It was It was a, a telephone call between them, um, uh, a discussion between them mm. about it, etc. Now, whether it was intentional or whether it was deliberate or whatever, but then the, the solicitor for the, the uh, householder will say, wrote to the bank solicitor and said, Hold up here a second. I've just checked the system and I see you've got judgment here. What's going on? I thought we'd agreed that this was going to be deferred and there was a delay in response. And then the other kind of things that happen within the legal field, which sometimes gobsmacks you, is that the solicitor then eventually finds out how many weeks later what went on, i.e. the solicitor for the house owner would say, and appeals the case mm. and says, right, okay, this isn't right. I'm going to appeal to the High Court. And uh, goes to the Court of Appeal. In fact, can't go to the High Court, has to go to the Court of Appeal. You can imagine the cost of all that. Mm -hmm. Has to go to the Court of Appeal and gets to the Court of Appeal and the bank, uh, and I'm saying the bank has in that side, then mm -hmm. comes up, wait a minute here, you don't, you shouldn't be appealing. There was another way of doing this. You should have gone another another route on it, number one. And number two says, well, actually, there's no provision under the rules for the Court of Appeal to, or the High Court to set aside the judgment where they've had a full hearing of the case and yes. therefore have made their decision on the facts and therefore you're, you're in trouble here. Now, you can imagine the amount of perspiration, concern, or worry will be going through your head. God, yeah. The, the poor householder must have been. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Not to mention his poor lawyer, but yeah. anyway, we won't worry about those fellas. But the, the, the interesting thing is, it goes through the whole plethora of law on this, which I won't bore you with. Order 37 versus Order 36 is the Superior Court rules, etc., etc., etc. Comes to the end point on it which is where you might instinctively land yourself and says, wait a minute, the 
the High Court has an inherent jurisdiction to make sure that everything is above board and fair. And under those circumstances, even though there's a whole load of technical reasons that you could argue that the court had made their decision, therefore it, you couldn't reverse it, if you know what I mean. Because obviously, if you, if you, if you think about that in isolation, you know, a court where they make a final decision based on the facts, which, if you like, there isn't a formal appeal on, the courts are extremely reluctant to reverse that because I, I do remember a case that I had years and years ago, years ago, not that long ago, but anyway, a couple of years ago, where we went through the district court, circuit court, high court, and then went on appeal to the Supreme Court. And then when we got to the Supreme Court and got back out of the Supreme Court again, we thought we were finished until there was an application to the High Court to reverse the decision of the Supreme Court on the basis that there was uh, some fraud or some element to the case that hadn't been brought to the attention of the High Court to the Supreme Court. And I remember thinking at the time, well, when, and surely to God, there must be an end stop to litigation in those circumstances. And obviously there has to be, and there's a very, very limited circumstances mm. under which the court and that obviously didn't apply in this case but to make a long story short the court appeal after 48 pages of decision going through the various things said that the court has an inherent jurisdiction and that fairness and constitutional kind of it's the re what they call what they didn't actually mention was the re high our friend Mr. High has often been quoted uh, mm. over the years under di in different contexts. But when it is after the trial, the arms trial, there was a case involving High after the arms trial where he took a case to say that he wasn't properly dealt with or fairly dealt with under the Constitution. And that kind of forms the cornerstone of a lot of arguments when you're dealing with fairness within our legal system. So long story short, that case and the reason that I put that case aside is that you can add it to another Supreme Court judgment in this area that I thought was very uh, obvious and you would have thought, you know, sometimes I remember when I started doing law first, I used to, oh, I kind of operate on, the, on that basis of fairness, you know. Mm. People are often attracted to law because they say that, you know, it's a source of trying to get fairness and right on the side of people and sometimes your gut instinct is this is not fair so therefore you fight it. I've kind of learned down the years that yes that's a good instinct to have but it also has to be backed up with a fair bit of law because you could fall foul of the legal system even though you know the you know the old saying of uh, the law is an ass well it's not always an ass but sometimes it can be so you need to be careful. And, and, and the, the, the householder, can, can you tell us, is it too early to, to say what exactly happened where that was concerned? The judgment was what then? Well, the judgment, the judgment was reversed. So what happened was, yeah, sometimes I forget, I don't say the most obvious things. You see, in that particular case, what happened was, and this is quite common, let's say you owe the bank, whatever it is, say 50000 and what can the bank do? The bank can issue what they call a summary summons, which is literally a kind of short version saying, uh, Fran owes me 50,000 bank mm. and they issue the paperwork. If Fran does nothing, they can then go into court. Well, in fact, they can, well, anyway, they can go into court and they can say, here's my proofs. He took out a loan on this date. He made these in the amount of installments. Stop paying on that date. I sent him a letter saying, please pay up 
and he ignored it. So mm. therefore, I'm at- they're my proofs. So like all legal cases, you gotta you got to establish your proofs. So in this particular case, what the bank did was they went in ignoring the fact, uh, the facts we were, as we were talking mm. about them, yeah. i.e. that there was an agreement. They went in and kind of put it up to the judge that the other side weren't turning up yeah. to stop in the story. So they then put in their proofs. They then went along and they said, Joe Blouse borrowed so much, loan, here's the paperwork, didn't pay this, here's mm-hmm. the paperwork, we issued a letter of demand, here's the paperwork, filed an affidavit, but we won't worry about that, mm-hmm. which is one of the really worrying things about it was that there was actually a written reply put in by the householder, which was ignored by the High Court uh, mm-hmm. to a certain extent, but, uh, which kind of raised the question, why wasn't that looked at? But anyway, the bottom line on it was that the in that situation then, the bank had what they needed. They had judgment. So they were able to go on to the next step, which would be to go and try to sell the house. And it was that. Uh, so therefore, the, the and this is a really a, a long rigmarole of cost here, if you think about it. Because all that, all that the Court of Appeal did was the bank spent the next two years defending this whole scenario and bringing it into the Court of Appeal, running this whole case in the Court of Appeal, to literally bring them right back to the day where they went into court looking for judgment. So they go right back to a rehearing. So you're you're no further advanced in the case than you were the, the day that the case, if you like, should have been adjourned yeah. on that Except with huge court. expense. Except with massive expense. Yeah. Well, of course, you would be getting your costs against the bank, thankfully, from the householder's point mm. because your costs would be covered. But you're no further advanced. You're still back into right. the scenario that you have to defend. I mean, it's, it's. I mean, the amount of kind of operational stuff that you have to deal with in these cases are extraordinary. I mean, the other case that, that I mean, so that. That's where that... Right. Uh, but did he, that did he remain in the house? Oh, yes. He's always in the house. Right. He doesn't get turfed out of the house until they... Sorry, that sounds very inelegant. Yeah. But he doesn't get into that situation until such time as they get the judgment. So, in other words, they don't have proof. They don't have what we call an enforcement order yet yeah. until such time as they go back in. So, they've got to now go back in after going through all this room and all. They've got to literally go back and deal with the whole thing again, you know? So, that's, that's God, where they are. Sounds really clumsy for people who should know better, but. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what it sounds like is a, is a massive waste of time mm. and a wa- massive waste of money. And you have to ask yourself why and, and, you know, why. But, you know, it begs the question, but it kind of also begs the answer. If you think about it for a second, David Bascalaya, you know, and poor old David has to keep slugging away because he's no judge because he's got an order against him saying that they have a judgment and he has not had the opportunity to defend himself. So he has no choice to keep going. But you couldn't say the same in the, in the context of the bank, you would have thought. Yeah, did you say there was a similar case as well, John? Was there? A... So, what I was saying, there, 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 there's another case. There's another case involving the banks, which, again, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. It's not so much, yes, it's involving banks that are actually involving crematoria or however you describe them. It was one under the insolvency code, which I came across recently, which de- deals with something that comes up quite often when people come in and ask me as a personal insolvency practitioner what they can do about their debt. 
because it dealt with a really interesting one. And I wondered when it was going to, if you like, hit the, the news or the headlines. And it dealt with a case involving um, somebody, a creditor, who had a house which was worth, say, a million. I think that's what this editor was worth. Yeah. It was worth a million. They owed 700000 So if the house was sold, they would actually have available 300000 mm. So the argument that the bank made was that in order for you to avail of the insolvency regime, in other words, for you to enter into an arrangement with any of your creditors, you have to first of all establish that you're insolvent. So it kind of raised that very, very, very interesting question as to what exactly does that mean? What does insolvency mean? And the classic kind of definition of insolvency is that you're unable to meet your debts as, as they become due. Mm. But, like all these things, I don't know how much you know about accountancy and balance sheets and profit and losses and cash flow and all that kind of stuff, but uh, I have to know a little bit about it on the business I'm running a business. Mm, but the, 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 the question there is, does insolvent mean that you could be uh, cash flow insolvent mm. or could you have a huge amount of assets and a huge amount of liabilities but still be... Uh, insolvent, if you know what I mean. So, in other words, are you looking at your balance sheet and the value of your business or, the, or whatever, or are you looking at your ability to put your hand in your pocket and take out the money, or in this day and age, do a bank transfer to pay your debt? So, what does it mean? Because in this particular case, this individual, what the lender or the bank said was, well, he could sell his house. Mm. He said his house he pays was off, and that's the end of it. So, the ergo dovishin. Uh, he's not insolvent, so that was their that was their argument. Now that went on for eighty pages, by the way. So I'm no. not going to give you the full, I'm not going to give you the full eighty yeah. pages on it. But in that particular case, what the judge decided was that, and I uh, mean, after a long, long uh, diatribe analysis of all the various cases in the UK and Ireland, he basically said that it's 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 a cash flow scenario with a little bit of kind of asset or balance sheet thrown in. So in other words, what he said was that in certain circumstances where you don't have the money in your pocket to pay it or in your bank to pay it, but you might have a readily disposable asset that will give you the cash, that in those circumstances, that's relevant. So that's, and which ironically is the way that we yeah. often do it. Funny, funny enough, John, I, I thought there was a more definitive um, uh, explanation for insolvency. Uh, th- that that seems rather vague, doesn't it? Yeah, it is vague. Yeah, it is vague. And now, Fran, <laughs> there may be somebody out there that will tell me. But this 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 high court judgment, eighty four, I think eighty four, eighty six pages discussing this. Mm. But there isn't. It's it's unable to meet your debts as they fall due. That's what the definition is. The definition is there. It's how you analyze it. So in this particular situation, you see, their their analysis was very straightforward. They said that this guy could sell the house and pay him off, and that's the end of it. Now, so the judge said, no, that's not the case here, because obviously, first of all, it has to be readily disposable, and a family home you couldn't put into that context, but doesn't rule out the fact that there may be other... Now, the irony of it is that in most insolvency situations, that I'm dealing with, you're going to 
be disposing of certain assets in order to deal with the insolvency situation. So in other words, you're going to be doing it anyway. But the point about it is that to get to the point, like the, the major point that he was making, and I have to say I was struggling with it for a while, was that you have to establish insolvency first before you can go into the whole system. Mm-hmm. So if, if you fall at that very first hurdle and that you're not insolvent, because a lot of people will, <clears throat> will come in to me and say, look, I have such and such and such and such, and I have this huge massive liability here. And of course, when you look at the whole picture, you see, well, yes, you do have a massive liability, but you also have the immediate wherewithal to dispose of it. Because mm-hmm. all you've got to do is do sell that or sell that or liquidate this or whatever, and all readily realizable. And that means that you're not, in fact, de facto insolvent. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's interesting because, you know, again, would you just to give you the end result on it, by the yes, way? Yes, please. Yeah. He lost. He lost. He lost his case even because what it was about to see is under the insolvency, and you and I have talked about this uh, quite a number of times, mm. under the insolvency code as we have it presently, and it'll be very interesting to see that they make any changes to it in light of the COVID scenario. I, I, I find it really strange that for years you and I were talking about the post, you know, the, we had the Celtic Tiger. Mm. Then we had the recession or whatever, what do we call it euphemistically, that period after the... After the, the, the downturn. The downturn. <laughs> then we had the downturn and now we have the COVID-19. Yeah. So it will be really interesting to see what pans out from all of that. But the, the in this particular situation, you can... At this point in time, if you were in difficulty with your um, family home in terms of making repayments on it, as of January of 2015, I think it is, yeah, I think it's the 1st of January 2015. So if you freeze frame your scenario and you look at it and you go back to 2015, January, and you were in trouble with your mortgage at that point in time, that triggers an entitlement to appeal a refusal by, let's in this instance, the bank to agree to an arrangement or, you know, a formal arrangement. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it gives you that entitlement to appeal to another court or to appeal to their court if the bank's veto it, if you know what I mean. And they introduced that now, whether they've changed the date and do something about it in the current tenant would be interesting to see. And that's what happened in this situation. In this situation, the the single creditor refused to agree to the arrangement, but because it was the family home, they had a right of appeal. And it was in the context of the right of appeal that the judge was looking at this whole issue of solvency and insolvency. But then he went down to what is the critical next step, which is you then look to the arrangement and ask the question, well, okay, has it qual- does it qualify? And one of the qualification criteria for the court to tick, you know, in terms mm. of ticking a box, one of those criteria is the family home and whether or not the family home is in this particular situation over the odds in terms of is it too expensive to run it, is it too large, is it, you know, is it, is it too much of it? And, and that's what they—that's what the court and decided. Really, exactly, because oh. in this particular situation, 
they'd be still paying their mortgage when they were 79 and the judge said that's way too long so was no he guarantee was funds. he essentially forced into the sale of the family home then was that correct Correct. Yeah. Uh, well, he's effectively, <clears throat> when you say forced, yes, he was effectively couldn't do the arrangement. So now the bank had a straight run at enforcing the the debt and therefore moving on to sell out. The funny, the little kick in the is, is that what they say? The kick in the tail? No, it's not the kick in the tail. But anyway, the last little bit of kick on it was really interesting because after uh, however many pages of it, I get to the last page and it was going through my mind. What was the date of this judgment? I was trying to think what was the date of the judgment. And I see it was the 30th of March. And I think to myself, okay, so right. In theory, when this case first came on the horizon two years previously, it was pre-COVID-19. We're now COVID-19. Is there any equity at all in the family home? <laughs> and he did cover it. He did say at the end, he did, a, he did what I would call a, a legal punches pilot at the end of it. And he said, well, you know, I can't do anything about COVID-19. I have to deal with the facts in front of me. And the only facts I have in front of me is that there is a negative exit. It's a good rubbish and I finished. Very. And wrapped up. And I said, thanks for the guy who's finished. <laughs> it's very That's interesting indeed. <laughs> Listen, will there be a flood of court cases uh, uh, following the COVID-19 um, uh, uh, moratorium mm. given by the banks and, and one thing and another. Do you think, will, will there be a flood of that? Because even after the moratorium, an awful lot of people won't be able to pay. Well, funny. One of the... One of, yes, there will be, because there'll be a, there'll be a, a plethora of repossession mm. cases yeah. that will hit the tracks. And they've all been held and postponed until the end of the year. I mean, and funny, just, just not to hold you up too much, um, the, one of the last judgments that I read was a judgment by a judge that I hadn't come across before. Well, no, I had to come across him before, but he was he was on, he was being asked to give an order for possession against this poor old devil. wasn't able to pay his mortgage. His sons were paying his mortgage, and they were arguing that there was a deal done, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And the judge at the end of it said, like, this is just really cracked, he said. He literally, he literally said that, you know, they need to do something to change the system. And you just wonder, I mean, it's a good note to finish on because this whole, he said that this system's been around since 1870-something, he said, you know, and we really need to overhaul it where somebody can go in, like we had in that Court of Appeal decision, going to the summary judgment. And that Court of Appeal decision, I was saying to you, which I forgot to mm. So complete this in my own head here. I said to you that that court appeal decision goes kind of hand in hand with a Supreme Court decision, which said that the banks need to say precisely how they're calculating the, the, the numbers on these summary judgments, because yeah. all of the all of these summary judgments, they just go in, get the judgment, the way you go. And some poor old devil who borrowed two hundred grand is suddenly looking at paying four hundred grand and. Supreme Court said, oh, oh, it's a second chair. You must spell it out. You must spell it out. But I do think they need to overhaul it anyway. All right, John, pleasure as always, no food for thought and all of that. Thank you very much for coming right, out with us. Thank you.